0: Well, good morning. good morning. Happy kickoff Sunday to everybody. Uh, for the last, well, we're going into year nine as a church, and each year we've, we've paused to celebrate and to kick off the start of a new ministry season with a big party. So we're, we're hoping that you can join us after this service for, for that party. Uh, it is not an exaggeration to say that I can spend the next 35 minutes talking about how excited I am for uh, what God has in store for us in this next season ahead. This is an exciting time. God's got his hand on this little church, and he's been doing some great things. But um, even as we celebrate our ninth anniversary as a church, I'd like to start today by acknowledging that today we commemorate the 15th anniversary of a day that changed our nation. How many of you remember where you were on September 11th, 2001? I worked at a large church, and uh, when the news started coming in that something had happened to one of the World Trade Center towers, we went down to our youth room because our youth room, we had this huge screen, and so we we put the news through this huge screen. Joyce was there, yeah, and uh, we watched the uh, events unfold. And as we watched the events of September 11th unfold, we recognized that our country was under attack. It was, it was a profound day and in the years that followed, we were introduced to names like the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, and ISIS, Boko Haram, and we have seen footage since then of beheadings. We've seen footage of bombings. We've seen footage of executions. And as more and more violence extends to more and more of the globe, we are forced to wrestle with questions now in this country. That we could have just not wrestled with before. In fact, there are conversations now that we need to be in that used to be the kind of things that people only talked about in comparative religion classes, in our country at least. Questions like What do Muslims actually believe about war and violence? You know, are terrorist groups following the teachings of Islam, as some say, or has Islam been hijacked by extremists, as others say? And then, what does a God honoring response look like? If you're trying to be a person who's trying to respond in a God honoring way to the craziness in this world, what does that even mean? What is our response when our lives are threatened? Is it to turn the other cheek? When is self defense warranted, justified? We live in a world again where these questions are—they're not questions that we can just push back anymore. We're in a war with a radical ideology. And so what we're going to try to do in this new series that kicks off today is we're going to do the best we can with the time we have to try to wrestle with some of these questions and and try to go to the scriptures and say, what does a God-honoring response look like? So here we go. Here we go. We've been talking about this series for a while. Time to dive in. I would encourage you to take out this uh, green insert as we do, and I encourage you to write this down on the first line here. How do Christians engage in a holy war? The word holy means set apart. Set apart. What, if, if, For those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, what does it mean to engage in a holy war? How do we do this? If we want to be people whose lives, our entire lives, come under the rule and authority of God, what does that look like? Over the next six weeks, we're going to do the best we can with the time we have. Uh, to present a bunch of things. We're going to see that Christianity and Islam, they share some similarities, but they are also very different worldviews. We're going to compare portions of the Quran and the Bible. We're going to discuss some of the contrast between Jesus and Muhammad and and more. And our jumping off point for this is going to be the book of Joshua in the scriptures, in the Old Testament. If you've never read the book of Joshua, it raises a lot of tough questions, doesn't it? A lot of tough questions. In our culture, these are extremely uncomfortable questions that the book of Joshua raises. In fact, there are going to probably be texts that we come across, one of them we're going to put on the screens at the end of the service today, where your neighbors, your friends may look at that text and go, that is exactly why I would never be a Christian. Because there's no way that I could believe and put my trust in a God who says things like that. We're going to see some of that in this book of Joshua. And we're going to go there because this is a church where we don't duck the tough stuff. We haven't ducked the tough stuff for nine years and we're not going to start now. In fact, we're going to encourage you to study it. We're going to encourage you to press into it. In your, book, in your notes here on the back page, I, we put a couple recommended resources. This list could be pages long, but here's just some starting points, a couple resources that we encourage you to look at that can help you when it comes to studying the scripture, and also a couple other resources, one by a person who converted, a devout Muslim who converted to Christianity, and another, a missionary who regularly, interf- well, for the last 50 years, has been having conversations with, um, with Muslims. So there's a couple resources we'd encourage you to look at. All right. Well, with that, here we go. Let's open up our Bibles. If you got one to Joshua chapter one, verse one. And I want to let you know, too, in addition to mugs and all kinds of stuff, uh, we also have Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one free. We keep stacks of them each and every week at the, the tables on the entrances. We'd encourage you just to take one, please, as a gift to you. All right, Joshua. Now, I recognize that there's, there, there's probably some folks here who aren't familiar with the Bible, familiar with the book of Joshua. So let me give you just a tiny bit of context here before we dive into Joshua 1.1. 1, 1. Um, the, uh, the book of Joshua is found in the Old Testament section of our scriptures. And uh, let me just say a little bit about, again, this, this, uh, this book and, and kind of the context around it. You may have heard that Christianity, Judaism, and Islam can all trace their origins back to a man named Abraham, and that's true. Descendants of Abraham's grandson Jacob were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, 400 years. And that predates this section of the Bible that we're going to be looking at, a section called Joshua. As the book of Joshua begins, God had then delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt, but they hadn't yet gone into the promised land. Moses was the leader that God used to get them out of Egypt, and he led the children of Israel to the very edge of of their greatly anticipated destination. And as they got right there at the edge, Moses selected 12 emerging leaders. And he said, I want you to go and spy on this land. Before we go in, I want you to go and spy. And one of these emerging leaders was a young man named Hoshea. And in the book of the Bible that we're going to call Numbers, we find that Moses gave him a new name. Gave him a new name. Here, I'll show you this. This is the book of Numbers. You can just stay in Joshua if you open your Bibles already. I just want to show you where his name came from. From each tribe of their fathers, this is, a, this is describing finding these emerging leaders that they're going to send out as spies. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall find a man, everyone a chief among them. And from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, son of Nun, is who they picked. And Moses called Hoshea, son of Nun, Joshua. Now, this is for a little bit later. I want to. Just point out what their names meant. Um, Originally, Joshua's name meant salvation, or he saves when he had that other name. But Moses called him Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. All right, so there's 12 of these people. 12 of these people, they are sent out. And 10 of the 12 came back terrified. They went out to spy. And 10 of the 12 came back, and they were just terrified. Because they said, these people are huge. We don't got a shot against these people. Not only that, they live in these fortified cities. We're done. Let's go back to Egypt. Only Joshua and another young leader named Caleb believed that the children of Israel could wage a successful war against the inhabitants of Canaan. But Joshua's optimism wasn't shared by his fellow Israelites. In fact, as Joshua and Caleb are like, guys, we can do this. God's with us. The people of Israel literally started picking up rocks and they were going to stone Joshua and Caleb with them. This is the plan here. Well, just as this was about to happen, the tent of meeting began to glow and the would be stoners hit pause on their plans to execute the two brave spies. Now, remember, I, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, I said the book of Numbers, there's more there than just Numbers. This is the kind of stuff I'm talking about here. Well, Moses, he made his way over to the glowing tent. He had a conversation with God. And after a very candid conversation, God revealed that the only two people that were going to enter this promised land were those two courageous spies. The only two people from this generation. The rest of that generation were going to die. And they would never get to enter the promised land. And that brings us to Joshua one, one. Moses had now passed the torch to Joshua. Joshua is about to lead the next generation across the Jordan River into the promised land. Here we go. Joshua one, one. We're going to go through verse seven. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. Remember that description of Moses, the servant of the Lord. The Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. I also noticed this, that God used the name Joshua instead of his given name. That's interesting. Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all of the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand against you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong, And courageous for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them only be strong and very courageous being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you shall have good success wherever you go. When Joshua heard those words, be strong and courageous, remember this is a generation later. He may have remembered what happened when the people weren't strong and courageous. And I think it's important just to note here that every generation will have their own opportunities to be strong and courageous. And isn't that the case with us right now? We have an opportunity to be strong and to be courageous. But the challenge is, what does that look like? What does strong and courageous look like? Because you can talk to a lot of people and they'll make a lot of cases as far as what strong and courageous looks like in our generation. There are those who say, hey, it takes strength and courage to join the military. And it does. To join the army, the air force, the marines. I've said before, Christianity is a reality-based faith. And the reality is there are some people who will not listen. Even Jesus couldn't convince everyone around and there are those who make the case to say hey it takes strength and courage to fight those who won't be stopped any other way is that what christians are called to do there are others who point out it takes strength and faith and courage to be a missionary to go to people who are committing these atrocities in jesus name armed only with the the sword of the spirit the word of god you know It takes a lot of strength and courage to go and to turn the other cheek, to be willing to lay down your life in that way without fighting back. So is that what Christians are called to do? There are many people right now who are pointing out to say, hey, it takes strength and courage to open our doors, to open our borders. It takes strength and courage to let people in who are fleeing these atrocities and to say, yeah, bad things could happen, but open up, let them hear, let them come. There there are all of these different things that are being floated out there as far as ideas are advocated for. Is one right? Does it depend? You know, there's all of these things. With such a wide range of options out there, where do we turn for wisdom? Where do we turn for wisdom as to what strong and courageous looks like in our generation? Well, very next passage, if we just keep reading, we see that Joshua is given wisdom into that, insight into that. Let's pick up where we left off, starting with verse 8. Here's what God says. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. One of the things that drew me to this denomination that we're a part of is their commitment to doing this, to going to the word, to go into the book, to go into the scriptures. In fact, um, before the covenant was the covenant, people used to call them the people of the book. They used to call them readers because they were so committed to knowing and learning and living out the scriptures. Now, one of the things that was interesting is I've been doing the best I can with the time I've got to read up on, on Islam is uh, is is this one of the mission one of the missionary the missionary in the book that I recommend? There he he said this. He goes, an acquaintance of mine has occasionally gone into Taliban areas of Afghanistan and Pakistan to talk about peacemaking. Does that take strength and courage? Oh yeah. But listen to this. His credentials. He is known as belonging to the people of the book. And some of us might go, wait a minute, aren't they using that's a death sentence, right? To go in saying, I'm a, I'm a, I am ai believe in the Bible, but look at this. The Quran calls for respect for the people of the book. Now, if you're going to become a person of the book, let me show you something that you're going to discover, and there's a place to write this in your notes. If you've been in the book, you know this already. The people of the book, we are confronted with unconventional battle plans. Isn't that true? If you want to engage in a holy war, you will often be... Given an unconventional battle plan, oh, the Battle of Jericho is a great example of this. it's the very first Bible battle in the book of Joshua, and it is a great example of an unconventional battle plan. In fact, the Battle of Jericho, it is flannel graph f- fodder i don't have my flannel graph today it's packed up for quite a while. But uh, here's what happened. Following the example of his mentor Moses, Joshua now, he's on the border of the promised land, so he sends spies in. He sends spies in. And the spies come to a fortified city named Jericho. A prostitute named Rahab hid the spies from the king of Jericho. And when the coast was clear, before the spies left, Rahab said this to the spies. This is found in Joshua chapter 2, starting with verse 9. She says to the spies, And listen to what she says. She says, I know the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land they melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. Do you see a contrast here between be strong and courageous? Our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now, then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house that you will save. What did Joshua's name mean? Remember, Yahweh saves my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And so we begin to see here, this is an unconventional war and there's all kinds of reasons for it. But one of them is the spies enter the land and the spies discover God's already there. God is already there before they even set foot in it. God is already at work. And even as God is saying to Joshua, be strong and courageous. He's instilled fear in the hearts of these other people. And one of the things that we're going to see as this series unfolds, God goes before us. And one of the important aspects of this unconventional war is to try to look for that and recognize that. And one of the consistent things I've been seeing as I've been reading is God is appearing to many Muslims in dreams. It's just, it's, it's shocking. We're also going to see too, as, as it unfolds, if you don't, haven't already seen this, there God has embedded right within the Quran itself things that testify to our scripture, things that testify to our Messiah. God has gone before us. Well, in the case of Jericho, when it comes to this idea of an unconventional battle plan, the physical battle plan was as unconventional as they come. God instructed the Israelites to bring down the walls by marching around them. And when the walls came tumbling down, the people of the book kept their promise to Rahab and kept their promise to her family. This is found in Joshua chapter 6, verse 25. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And as she lived in Is or she has lived in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Well, Joshua proved true to that name that God that Moses had given him. And the book says that Joshua saved Rahab and her family. And I want to show you something here that I've pointed out before about Joshua's name and the connection to Jesus' name. All right, so the Old Testament originally came to us in what language? Hebrew. And so Joshua is the English translation roughly. This is an oversimplification. But Joshua is roughly the the English translation of Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. Now, this is fantastic, interesting to me. The um, the scriptures that we have, the English translations that we have of the Bible, the Old Testament portion, is actually when they try to say the original manuscripts, what they try to pull from primarily are a Hebrew translation, but also a Greek translation called the Septuagint. Tracking with me here? So there's these two man, these two um, documents that they they try to pull from as they try to translate this into English, and in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Look at the name for Joshua. Does it look a little bit like a name that we're familiar with? It, it, it should because that's that Greek word right there, look in the New Testament, if you go over to the Jesus column here, that's the name, the same name, the same word is used for Joshua in the Old Testament that's used for Jesus in the New Testament. And that name means Yahweh saves. Now what's interesting to me is that the Joshua-Jesus connections don't end there. Jesus is interwoven into this whole account with Joshua. One of them is just in the genealogy. Take a look at this. This comes from the book of Matthew. It's the first book in our New Testament. And this comes in the family tree of Jesus. The book of the genealogy, it says, of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, dot, dot, dot. It lists all of these different um, people on Jesus' family tree. And you eventually come to... Rahab. Rahab. Rahab is in Jesus' family tree. Jesus, who has the same Hebrew name as Joshua, had an ancestor who was saved by Joshua, whose name also means Yahweh saves. But that's not where my head starts to hurt. Here's where my head starts to hurt. Let's go back to the book of Joshua and look at an account that happens right before the battle of Jericho. This, this happens right before the... And not a lot of description is around it. It's just, this happened, oh, now onto the Bible of Jericho. Take a look at this. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And the man said, No. No. <laughs> Okay, so you're Joshua. Now what? But he says, as the commander of the army of the Lord, now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? His servant. Who else was called the servant of the Lord? Moses. Moses. And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Okay, my head hurts because who in the world is Joshua talking to here? Some say an angel. Well, generally angels, when angels get, someone starts to worship an angel, they usually say what? They say, don't worship me. Worship who? God. Okay, well, God. But some people might say, well, this is Jesus. The commander of the Lord's army that fits with Revelation. But there's these parallels between this encounter and the encounter between Moses and the burning bush. Moses is a servant of the Lord. Take off your sandals. It's holy. So what in the world just happened here? My answer, I don't know. I don't know. I'd encourage you to write this down, though. Here's what I do know. The people of the book are confronted with an unconventional God. Can I get an amen? Amen. Oh, and as we open this series, I I can't think of a more important thing to say than this. Humility matters in this war. Humility matters in this war. Because we are going to get called into unconventional battles that we didn't understand. We are going to have an unconventional God who we can't predict, how he's going to lead, work, guide, it's huge. Now, one of the great things that humility does, it opens up conversations, right? Do you want to talk to someone who's got all the answers? No, generally you don't. Humility can also open up conversations, and you're going to find that most Muslims would love to answer questions about their faith. Most of them would love to share their faith. In fact, if they're they're obedient to their faith, they should be sharing their faith. So most want to talk about their faith. And nothing opens up conversations better than being a good listener, a sincere listener. And nothing will open up usually another person's ears like being a good listener. When you've been heard, you often are more willing to listen to the person who just listened to you. Now, some time ago, there was a well-intended professor at Wheaton College who decided to show her solidarity with Muslims by putting on a hijab and stating that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. Now, for the record, I applaud her attempt to try to build bridges. I think you need to be really, really careful with a statement like that. Because I think that statement can be very, very misleading. Let me give you an example of a resource, you know, from one of the resources you recommend in your notes. This guy says this. This is this missionary. He's been working with with Muslims for 50 years. He says this, about 50 Muslims and Christians were sitting once in a circle on a carpeted floor of the Upper Darby Mosque in Philadelphia suburbs. In a two-hour presentation, the imam described the six pillars of belief and the six pillars of duty in Islam. And he wrapped up the evening by saying, you can forget everything I've said tonight, but here's one exception. He said, never forget, there is nothing surprising in Islam. It is the religion of the natural man. All of us are born naturally Muslim, he said. Even without revelation, philosophy would open your eyes to the truth of Islam. I responded, the author. He said, That might be true of Islam. It is not the gospel. And he did this with respect and and, and out of relationship. He said, that's not the gospel. The gospel is so surprising, we can't even believe it without the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to the amazement of God's love. Can I get an amen to that? We, We can't. The scripture says that. We can't even believe it unless the Holy Spirit helps us. The gospel is the good news that God has come to us in a baby in a manger, in a refugee in Egypt, in a carpenter in Nazareth, in a wandering preacher who slept outside in the wilderness, in a man who washed the feet of those who planned to betray him, a man who, when he was crucified, cried out, Father, forgive them. One of the things I've seen consistently as I've been reading is this is a stumbling block to Muslims. Because that doesn't match up with their understanding of God. Because what kind of God would allow his Messiah to go through this? What kind of God would allow a good man to go through this? It is a stumbling block. In Islam, they believe that God in his mercy sends his will down. But for God to suffer himself in this way on our behalf? That's very different than what they teach and believe. So, and here you see it, as this event played out, the the imam responded, it is impossible for God to love that much. And here, the missionary attempts a conversation, he says, do not put God in a box and say that he can't love as Jesus loved, I urged. Let God what? Let God surprise you. How many of you have been walking with God for more than 10 years and say that he continues to surprise you? (laughs) Look at that. God surprises us. And again, while it's important to find common ground, it is so important to find common ground. Christians serve an uncommon God. An uncommon God. Here's a quote that I came across during my prep this week by Tim Keller. No surprise where that quote came from, right? He says this, what the Muslim denounces as blasphemy, the Christian holds precious. God has wounds. God has wounds. Our God isn't like other gods. Here's another example. Christians and Muslims both believe that God is one. We've got common ground there, right? God is one. That's foundational to both of our faiths. However, we believe that our one God exists in three persons, and this matters, That Christian missionary was accused by a different Muslim of teaching that there are three gods. And here's how he responded. He said, Trinity is not about three gods. Actually, Trinity means that you and I should love each other. Let me explain. God is one and God is love. That means that God is united in loving communion. Through the ministry of Jesus, the Messiah, God has reached out to us sinners to reveal his love among us in the resurrection power of the risen Messiah. God has sent the Holy Spirit to live among us and in us so as to empower us to love one another as God loves. God does not sit with folded hands just keeping his love to himself. No, in Jesus, God comes down to save and empower us to love as God loves. That is what Trinity means. This name for God is our inadequate way of putting him into language, the reality that God is love. Do you see how if we start to say it's all the same, yeah, we serve one God, that's true, but then we leave out this amazing dimension of God and this, this piece of God that is foundational to our, 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 our understanding of community and even why we were created. As we attempt to build bridges with Muslims, who are open to listen, and this is so important, there will be people who aren't open to listen. There will be some. There'll be a lot of them, just as there are all over the place. But for those who are open to respectful dialogue, it's important that we represent our faith well in those conversations. Not only by showing solidarity and respect, but also by sharing the good news of our unconventional God. And here's our good news. There's a place to write this in your notes. Our unconventional savior has secured an unconventional victory for those who trust and follow him. Our God isn't like other gods, which brings us in full circle to that humility piece. This is why I believe humility is so important. Last thing I'd encourage you to write down here today is this. The people of the book, we march into battle with what? Humility. You've got to, even as you're strong and courageous, you've got to have that. But go forward with humility. Humility is a force multiplier. Not only does it open possible doors to dialogue, it won't always, but sometimes it will with people who are seeking truth. It will open up doors to dialogue, but it does more than that. It opens us up to the leading of an unconventional God. When I listen to people who opinionate, they tend to gravitate towards one of two battle plans. Can we quickly put up Matt, uh, Micah six eight? This is a passage we come back to a lot because it summarizes our, our, our faith. It says this, and, and what a response is to our faith. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Now, here's one of the things that I've seen. There are Christians who who they really lock on to that justice piece, right? Are we called to do justice? Yes. And there are some Christians that kind of forget about the rest of it, and they lock on to the justice piece. That's one of the reasons why, why, why some Christians tend to sound so militaristic. Because they're like, come on, there are people who are being murdered. There are people who are being tortured. There are people who are being raped. We have a responsibility. We can prevent that through, the, through force. And do you see why some people lock onto that? Because like, we've got to do justice here. We can, we can make a difference. There are other Christians who gravitate towards the mercy battle plan. The mercy battle plan. And, and they point out things like this. I haven't had a chance to fact check this, but I've seen in a number of resources where it said for the first 300 years, Christians weren't signing up for military service. Because the Bible has a lot of strong things to say about not engaging in violence. And so there's Christians who they lock on to that piece and they go, this is important. But what does the scripture say? It says, do justice and love mercy. And then what does it say? Walk humbly. Walk humbly. Because that keeps us open to an unconventional God. And as we study the scriptures and as we seek God's wisdom, and as we listen to others who are doing the same, we begin to realize, oh, we are in desperate need of the Holy Spirit to guide us, aren't we? And I've talked to enough of you before this service, or before this series started, and one of the themes I've heard is, I feel so inadequate. I've got friends, neighbors, co-workers who are Muslim, I don't even know where to start. They present to you, that's the best starting spot. That's the best starting spot. Because generally those who have it all figured out are doing a lot of damage, aren't they? Those who in their mind said, this is it. Here's your, this is, this is how, this is exactly what every Muslim thinks. Here's the right response. It's a lot more complicated than that. The world needs more people who don't think they have all the answers and more people who are committed to walking humbly and saying, God, would you lead me in this situation, in this moment, day by day, living out the both and of doing justice, love and mercy that requires a lot of walking humbly. All right, well, that's all we got time for today. But speaking of humility, here's an example of the kind of scripture that's waiting for us next week. Take a look at this, Joshua chapter 11, verse 20. And there's multiple passages like this in the scripture. For it was the Lord's doing to harden the hearts of neighboring kings that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to what? Destruction. And should receive no mercy, but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. What do you do with a passage like that? It's one of many in which the people of God are instructed to kill civilians in that instance, including women and children. How do you reconcile those acts of war with the Prince of Peace? And how is that any different than the atrocities that we can be quick to accuse others of? That's what we pick up next week. (laughs) (laughs) yep that's how we pick up next week uh but before we leave we'll uh close in prayer and then uh then stick around i'll say amen and then we have some blessing of the food to do here too before we do so let me just pray and then we'll talk about the food father um what do we do with a passage like that other than to humbly come to you and say this is your inspired word and you are god and we're not and we pray for wisdom, and we pray for discernment, and we pray for not just um, philosophical answers to huge questions, but we pray, Lord, that you'll teach us what it means to be strong and courageous as we enter into um, a world where violence seems to be accelerating and people seem to be polarizing more and more. We pray for your spirit to guide us and to lead us, that you put us in that place of having strength and confidence rooted in your word, along with a whole lot of humility that comes from encountering you in your living word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.